All right. All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Providence. Y'all can find a seat. Um, thanks for being here. It's good to see everyone uh, this morning. So as we always say at Providence, uh, we are devoted to a single vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus Christ unignorable in our city. Uh, to this end, every single week, we open up the Word of God because we believe it has everything we need uh, to know, worship, and obey our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, and so we believe the Word is central to that vision and is important, and so we love to open it and hear from it. Um, and so we've been in a series called The Great Eight. We are walking through Romans 8, line by line, verse by verse, exploring the promises of God that are held out to us in Romans 8. And, and hopefully being uh, both challenged and encouraged uh, in one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, Romans 8. And so uh, we're going to be in Romans 8 today. Uh, we'll be uh, doing the, the next couple of weeks, the last few parts of this series. Uh, today we'll be focusing in verses 29 and 30. So you can turn there in your Bible. Uh, I believe it's on, I can't remember what page it's on in the Pew Bibles. But if you don't have a Bible today, we have some Bibles in front of you, uh, hopefully in the seat pocket there in front of you. And you guys can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that, and it is yours to keep. Uh, if you do own one, we prefer you don't make forts at your home with ours, but you can keep them there for someone who may need it, okay? Um, so once again, it's Romans 8, uh, starting verse 29. Uh, and if you get there, or when you get there, if you're able to this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word, uh, we're going to read it together. So Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29. So Providence, hear the word of the Lord. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, I'm excited for this text. There's a lot of truth backed into here. Uh, I'm going to do my best not to uh, get too bogged down into one term or one area, uh, but it is going to be challenging for me. So I would like to start off in prayer uh, and just ask that God will be with us this morning, that the Spirit would open our eyes to the Word uh, in joy, and that this morning He'd help us to hang on to some of the most profound and amazing promises of God that we could ever read in our lifetime. So if you would join me in praying, let's do that together. Father, we love you so much. Uh, and though our love is weak, our love fails all the time. Our love never lives up to what we promise our love would do for you. But God, yours is the opposite. God, you always love perfectly, joyfully, Without anger, without falling away, without making one mistake, God, you love us perfectly through and through. And on top of that, you love the most unlovely people ever. We hated you. We were rebellious. But God, you came to us and you made us your children so that we might become a part of your family, that we might be loved perfectly, affectionately, and God, as we read the truths, which could be hotly debated maybe in this room, but nonetheless, the truths of the Bible, God, we are floored. We are amazed. We are in awe. We rejoice at your truth. And so, God, I pray this morning 
that you would help us, Father, to not let our flesh get in the way, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to your word? Would you do an amazing work this morning to confirm our calling and election, to give us great joy and mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ? May we grab onto the promises that are held out to us this morning. That is our prayer together. And we ask all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, I kind of want to start off with an analogy that I think might be helpful for us. Because um, I've heard this analogy a lot. So I don't know if any of you have ever gone skydiving. Okay. Uh, I have once. And I'm not like the most uh, risky person of all time. I'll say that. All right. So skydiving for me wasn't like, oh, yes, I'm going to do this all the time. Uh, I'm going to go skydiving. It's going to be amazing. I'm not afraid. I was actually the opposite. I just, uh, our, our, my son Ezra, the oldest one I have, was just born. So I was like, well, I don't want to die now, right? Because I could mess this up. But we were going for my stepbrother's birthday, and uh, there was a bunch of people going, and so we decided to go skydiving. And if you've ever gone skydiving, it's exciting at first, right? You're like, you're super excited. It's going to be fun. You're going to be falling to the ground as fast as an object can go, right? And then all of a sudden, the parachute's going to rescue you right before you hit the ground. Um, and and if, you, if you've ever been, you have to sit through these videos. So I went to this place that was in way south in Houston, probably in Sugarland or something like that. And uh, someone had died the week before. A parachute did not function properly. And the, this man was solo jumping and he plummeted to his death. So I'm like, okay, this is good news. So I find that out when I get there. And then they make you sit through these series of videos that explains uh, how you could really die, right? And so they start to explain what all could happen, what all could go wrong. And constantly in these videos, they try to make them funny, but they're constantly warning you, uh, you may die today and you will be responsible for that death. It will not be us that is responsible for your death. And so by the time you actually go, and then you have to wait around for a couple of hours because it's busy there. So that was also, you know, now you have time to think about what might happen. And then eventually by the time you actually get your gear on and then you're strapped very close, uncomfortably close to another man behind you, right? At that point, it's like, there's no going back. If I bail out now, you know, it's going to be embarrassing. And so there's enough pride, at least in me, to say, okay, I have to go through with this, right? I've, I've, come, in, I've come in too far to this scenario. And so then I get stuck with this guy. And so, you know, I don't know how it is in every place, but this place in particular, the guys that were, uh, I guess, uh, I don't know what the word is, maybe risky enough to actually have this job as a bunch of young guys that dropped out of college and were just excited to be skydiving for their career. And so I get strapped to this Irish man and I have an Irish heritage, so I can understand why I was scared, okay? This guy was just, I could tell he was careless. He was making a lot of jokes that I was not happy about, okay? And so uh, I lived, obviously, if you were curious what happened after skydiving, but I've heard the analogy a lot that says uh, something like this, right? Like maybe uh, you, you may have heard like, God is like a parachute, right? Or, or the gospel is like a parachute. Jesus Christ is like a parachute. You're jumping out of an airplane and you're falling to the ground, but suddenly the parachute, the secure thing, right, will save your life. It will bring you nice and easy to the ground. But the problem with that analogy is parachutes don't always work, right? Parachutes fail and people die. This is a reality. There's nothing that's going to stop you if that parachute doesn't work. You may have a second parachute, but that one may also not work, right? And so there's still this uh, imminent, obvious risk of you hitting the ground and dying. And so I would like to propose a different analogy this morning. I would say the promises of God, God himself, the gospel of Jesus Christ that are held out to us, right? The promises of God held out to us in his word 
are not a parachute that could potentially fail, but that we cling to because it's the best thing we got as we're diving to the ground. They are not a parachute. Rather, the promises of God are the ground as the ground itself. So what is the ultimate best way to stay safe from dying, from falling from the sky is to stay on the ground, right? The ground, if you are on the ground, you have 100% confidence you will not die from skydiving. Now you could trip and still fall and die. So it's not a, it's not a great analogy, okay? But the point is, right, is that uh, God's promises held out to us in the Bible are sure for the believer. They are absolute 100% confidence. Not that everything is gonna be exciting and fun and painless, not that kind of confidence, but rather the confidence that despite the worst possible pain that could happen, we are secure in Jesus Christ. When we die and leave this earth, no matter what suffering we have endured, no matter what suffering, suffering caused that death, we know as we go into eternity that we will be his, that we will be alive, um, and that we will be with him forever. It's much different than a, than a parachute. And so if you remember last week, last week was such a refreshing sermon for me. It was based off just the verse, verse 28, Romans 8, 28. I want to read it because I want to follow the logic of Paul here uh, and what he's doing. So let's just look at verse 28 uh, really fast. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, he continues. So what Paul is doing in this text is he is making a connection. Verse 28 is true. He could have left it at that and that would maybe been enough for us, right? He said, if you love God, God's called you according to his purpose, then everything, all things, the worst atrocities that could happen to you and the greatest moments of joy that could happen to you, all things are working together for your ultimate, final, eternal good. And so that whether you have cancer or whether you get a promotion, you can say with confidence, all things in Christ are working out for my good. Now that's amazing promise. And Paul could have left it there, but if you notice that word for, or you could maybe exchange that for because, so Paul is saying because this is what I said, all things are going to work out for your good if you love God and you're called by him and his purposes. Because, insert verse 29 and 30. So verse 29 and 30 is an explanation of how could that be possibly true? How could my awful diagnosis, my crazy situation, 2020, right? How could that possibly be for my good? And Paul is going to explain what he means by that. I love this passage. It is unbelievable. I want to say one more thing before I jump in. I want to focus on the heart of this text. There's so many things I want to say. There's so many things that theologians and commenters and pastors have said on these things. Just such amazing truths. But I want to try to keep it as simple as I can. I want to just say, um, let's focus on the heart of the text. I know when we talk about predestination, uh, in the church for hundreds, probably uh, a thousand years at least, there has been a serious divide over what that means. On one hand, you got God's total sovereignty where he predestines those who will be born again, which I believe the Bible teaches. Um, 
And then you got those who say, absolutely not, there's no way, right? It's just a, based on a choice that you and I make. And there's kind of these two tensions here. And I think there's some, maybe some legitimacy to both. And, but my whole point is, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this. I just want to look at the heart of text. Why is Paul even talking about predestination? It's because he wants to give you an anchor for your soul. So let's look at that together. So verse 29 starts off, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So let's talk about foreknew. What does that mean? What does it mean? Oh yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention. I got three major questions I want to answer in this text. Sorry, I'm all backwards now. The skydiving thing threw me off. Uh, Three major questions. What is he saying? Why is he saying it? And how do we apply it? That's what I want to focus. That's my kind of overview. Uh, What is he saying? Why is he saying it? And how do we apply it? So let's look. What in the world is Paul saying here? So the first thing he says is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So let's talk about what does it mean to foreknow? There's two camps here. Okay, I I don't want to make this into a classroom setting. I'm going to do my best to get through this really fast. But one common deduction of that word foreknew is, is simply this, that God, being sovereign, which he is, also being outside of time, unlike us, which he is, looked down the corridors of time and was able to sovereignly see how you and I would have reacted to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And based on our reaction to the gospel, God said, I'm going to predestine those who would have responded correctly to salvation and I'm going to predestine those who did not respond correctly to damnation in hell. And so this theory, this explanation of foreknew is, finds its basis of salvation ultimately on man's self-determination. It's an important word, self-determination. So if we say that foreknew means that God looked forward at our decision. That means ultimately we are saying our destination for eternity, our glory in Jesus Christ, our believing the gospel is based on human self-determination. Now I could not, as you can tell, disagree with this more. And my goal is not to be insensitive to anyone's beliefs that might line up where that is or to be insensitive to anyone here. I simply want to say as John Piper said, that, if, that God must be the decisive power and factor of our salvation or we have no hope in Jesus Christ. If we are the decisive power and factor of our salvation, we are condemned before we start. It doesn't take a lot of knowledge. It doesn't take a lot of wits to know that if you look at yourself and you trust in yourself, to save yourself, you are a goner, right? That's what Paul is getting at. He's not trying to get into the semantics of argument here. He's trying to show us that if we base our salvation and our self-determination, we've already lost the battle. The Bible describes you as dead. I want to look at Ephesians 2 really fast. And I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 10. Let me just go through it quickly. Just listen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, 
and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now look at these last few verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you just look at that text at face value, and he talks about predestination right before that, kind of similar themes here in Romans 8. But he simply says that you were dead. You were dead and you've been given the gift of grace, the gift of life by God himself. And God did it this way so that no one could boast. No one could say, my works made this happen. It wasn't like Jesus said, I did something. So if you take my something plus your something, that's going to equal a whole lot of something. It's going to get you into heaven. That's not, that's not what happened, right? It, it was simply that God was gracious to us. So I think that we could maybe find a better definition of what foreknow means. Um, and I was going to look at a bunch of texts, but for the sake of time, I know I'm already about to mess this up. So I'm going to skip those for this service. Uh, those were 1 Corinthians 8.3 and Genesis 18.19. You can look at those later. But um, John Murray, who helped found, he was a Scottish theologian. He helped found the Westminster Theological Seminary. And he talked a lot about this foreknowledge. He did lots of studies on this. He looked at the Old Testament usage of the word to know. Uh, and also the, the, the New Testament. He said two things I want to read about it uh, on a talk he gave on Romans. And he said this. First thing is, he said the use of the word know is frequently expressed by the word love. And so he talks about those being actually quite interchangeable, interchangeable in most cases in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And then he says this, specifically about this text. He says, to know beforehand is to know with peculiar regard and love from before the foundation of the world, it could mean nothing else in this instance. And he goes on to explain further what he means by that. But the definition of foreknow I want to give is simply that God foreknew, foreloved, and forechose you and I. In Galatians and in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul will go on to say something to the effect of that for those who love God have been known by God. Um, And so this knowledge of being foreknown is a very affectionate, loving, choosing adoption of God for us. That's how I would define that. I don't know if that made it any clearer, but you've been foreknown, foreloved, forechosen by a gracious God. And I hope today as you believe that promise that you feel absolutely loved by that truth. You feel loved by God that (laughs) he didn't look and think, oh, you're so lovely. (laughs) He didn't look and say, oh man, you're going to be so good. I want that one. That's not what happened. He went to the orphanage and said, yeah, I need the worst ones you could possibly find. Bring those to me. I'm going to love them anyways. That's what God did for us. He foreknew, foreloved, forechose you, though you were undeserving and dead. And it's a mystery and will be throughout all eternity. But we rejoice in it, right? So let's go on. So, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. There's a lot of good things in here. Let's roll through them. So he predestined us to be conformed to the image of God. There's two major things I want to talk about. One is that God predestined us 
and also that God predestined us with a, with a specific purpose in mind. So let's roll through those. God, we were predestined by God. To predestine, in my own probably not so good definition, simply means to predetermine one's destiny. That's where you get predestined, to predetermine one's destiny. So obviously there's a lot of famous sayings about man taking destiny into his own hands. Uh, those aren't true, right? God takes our destiny into his own hands, thanks be to God, because my destiny would have been really weird if I got what I wanted when I was in high school. So I'm sure we all can rejoice in that. Once again, I know this has been a contentious battle and I don't hope to offend anyone, but I simply want to say, as we said earlier, God must be the decisive power of our salvation or we are without hope. You cannot argue that our righteousness is found solely in Jesus Christ while at the same time maintaining that we have control whether we embrace that righteousness or reject it altogether and stay faithful to it. So to define predestination is kind of really similar to foreknew and foreloved and forechose is that God uh, by his sovereign grace said, and that we're all undeserving, right? Because the, the main... The main argument, sorry, let me backtrack. The main argument against God predestining us is that that would be unfair, right? That would be unjust of God because he didn't give everyone a fair chance. Why would he do that? That's not loving, right? That's mean. God is not loving if he did that. And I would simply say that you can't look at these truths through, this, through man being the center of the universe. You gotta look at God being the center of the universe. You gotta understand the Bible teaches you don't deserve happiness. You don't deserve life. You don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve the love of God, but rather you deserve the opposite of all of those things. You deserve death. You deserve hell. You deserve destruction. And yet God in his grace predestined the children of God to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It is grace. And so to be predestined means to be chosen by God in gracious love and in that we rejoice and you were also predestined for a purpose this is what Paul's trying to get at he says you were predestined to what to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so God has predestined you and I and saved us by Jesus Christ to be adopted into his family that we might be conformed to the image of our perfect glorious loving elder brother Jesus Christ who was the firstborn and what this simply means is that Jesus Christ, when you see that word firstborn, it was a common, it's, it's an honor to be the firstborn of something. It's not saying that Jesus was born of God and created by God, but rather Jesus being God himself who took on flesh was the perfect man that we could never be. And so him conquering death, resurrecting in his body and going back to eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? He was the, the firstborn. He was the uh, starter of what we would do, which is that we would become uh, like him. And so to become like Jesus is a great honor. If you don't want to be like Jesus, you're not going to like heaven. You're not going to like the Christian faith, okay? Uh, to be like Jesus is the most glorious thing that we could pursue. And I want to spend more time on there, but I, I have to continue moving on. So what is happening here is God is bestowing this great honor upon Jesus Christ as the firstborn. And so we glorify Jesus Christ as we become more like him. So the ultimate goal of our predestination and the ultimate goal of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is that we may bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. And this is a glorious truth. So you've been forechosen. You've been predestined by a loving God. Let's continue. And those who be predestined, he also 
called. It's the next step in the chain here, what Paul's saying. You've been called. I don't want to spend much time on this, but I want to say this. This calling is not the calling that happens right here on a Sunday morning where we say to anyone who would come and love Jesus Christ, come, believe the gospel, have your burdens gone, be saved. That call goes out to the entire universe prayerfully, right? That's what God said to do, right? Go, go do that. Go make disciples of all the nations. Um, so this call of God to come, to repent, to believe in him, lest you perish, this call goes out to all. But this specific you've been called is a very affectionate and personal call by Jesus Christ that you cannot refuse. This call is Jesus Christ looking at you in the eyes and saying, come, come to me. I've prepared a place for you. Come to me. I've provided a way of escape from the wrath to come. Come to me and be healed and be changed and be loved forever. And I would say in this call, (laughs) there's no way you could refuse. No one hears that personal call of Jesus Christ and says, not going to go watch Netflix. We'll talk later. Doesn't happen. You hear the call of Christ and you come. I mean, in my life, this is amazing when I discovered this. I mean, I've told my story. I won't get into the details, but I tried for a long time. I was raised in a Christian home. There's divorce and some weird things. So it's not like it was like a structured Christian home by any means, okay? Uh, But I was taught at a young age the gospel truths that I know and love to this day. And I tried my best to believe them. I tried my best to feel assured in Jesus Christ that they were mine. But I went to sleep every night as a young child, terrified of hell, terrified of God and worried about what was going to happen to me when I died. And it wasn't till Jesus came to me and the same call I've heard over and over and over and over again from pastors and preachers and my parents and others came to me in the realest way I could ever imagine. And it all made sense to me in an instance. That's what I mean by call. Jesus will gather his sheep. It will happen, 100%. He's never failed, he never will. That's the call. So God has foreknown you, forechosen you, foreloved you. He's predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, which is the greatest honor we could ever ask for and brings the greatest honor to Jesus Christ. And then he has called you into his family, his fold, into the gospel of Jesus Christ in which we believe. And lest we forget, those whom he called, he justified he justified. Now we did the first couple sermons out of Romans 8 on this, so I'm not going to spend much time. I simply want to read the first four verses of Romans 8 because they explain justification in such a good way. It's what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so what's happening here is God in Jesus Christ is doing what the law could never do. So the law is these commands of God, right? It says, if you perfectly obey these, you're righteous. If you fail in one aspect, you've lost it all, right? This is the summation of the law. And, and, and what Paul is saying here is God, through sending Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, and taking our punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserved for sin, 
taking that and placing it on Jesus Christ, the only perfect man who was undeserving of this punishment, and in Jesus Christ, absorbing every ounce of the wrath of God that you and I deserved, now has done what the law weakened by sin and the flesh could never do, which is make you totally and absolutely righteous. So to be justified is to be declared not guilty. No one in their right mind could look at themselves and say that you were not guilty. But thanks be to God that we've been justified by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took our guilt on him and exchanged it and has given us his perfect righteousness. And so that now in the everlasting courts, which you and I will stand when we leave this body, we will, by the grace of Jesus Christ, be declared not guilty, clean, white as snow, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. You are justified, and this is amazing. This is justification. You are secured as righteous children of God once and for all. All your sins, wrongs, failures are forgiven. You are made new and righteous in Jesus Christ. And I love that he does this. And then he goes on to say, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. I love that he puts it in the past tense. I may be taking a little bit of merit here, but I think there's some realities in both aspects. But I simply want to say that we do long for the ultimate glorification where we'll drop this sickly, dying body. I don't care how pretty you think you are, okay? You're going to get uglier because you're going to age and this body's going to drop, right? And when it does, one day, we will rise again with the resurrected bodies and we will be in the ultimate glory. But I want you to think about this. You, wretched, vile sinner. I can say that because the Bible says it. You're awful. You're scary to look at. You're bad. And God not only forgives you in pity, but he then takes you and he glorifies you. You ever think about that? I mean, I shudder to say those words. He glorifies you. Now, not in the way he glorifies himself, lest we be mistaken. But he glorifies you. He brings you along with Jesus Christ, and you inherit all things. You inherit the glory of Jesus Christ. And even right now, as you stand still sinful this morning, you've been glorified by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now, God says a lot of other things about you, so that way you walk with a limp. It's very good that we walk with a limp through this life and through eternity, because if we didn't, we'd be way too puffed up, right? The ultimate goal is God's glory, but you get to be brought up into that as his children, and rightfully so, because of what Jesus has won for you. Now, I got a few minutes here. I'm doing well. I had to rush through that. I apologize. So when we take these glorious truths, this is what Paul is saying. You've been foreknown by a loving God. You've been predestined by a gracious God. You've been called by a good God. You've been justified by an amazing God. And you've been glorified by a glorious God. So why is Paul telling us this? Why is he saying it? We'd said that earlier, right? He's saying it to bolster what's going on, the promises of God in um, verse 28. But I have one more thing that I think is probably a really good reason that Paul is giving us this. Paul is aware that 
even after making the audacious claim that all things work out for our good if we love God and are called according to his purpose, that we have the propensity to seek our security and our comfort in other things besides God and his promises. We do. I want to do an experiment. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because then I would raise my hand and then you wouldn't listen to what I have to say. So that'd be embarrassing. Just just think about the past couple of months. Just think about 2020, okay? Uh, pandemic, pretty awesome. You know, we have to wear masks out of here. This is really weird. Um, political and racial tension have increased a lot. Don't forget about murder hornets, okay? Probably don't even need to say anything after that, right? Uh, and you can think of maybe other tragedies. I, I know many things in, in my life, in, in y'all's lives with sickness and you know, a bunch of things that we're dealing with, which are not uncommon to this life. Life is tough. Now, I want you to think about the patterns that you've seen in your life. When things get tough, maybe by God's grace, we flock to Christ first, which we should. But if we're honest, we could look at some patterns that maybe you've seen in your life the past couple of months. You probably have gone through so many Netflix shows, you don't know what to watch now, right? And you'd rather just binge there. And they're probably not good and golly, that's for sure, right? <laughs> uh, and you find yourself compromising more and more on the, wi- the risk you're willing to take as far as sin in those ways. Um, you may find yourself drinking a lot more alcohol than you thought was possible, okay? You might find yourself getting a little more, a little more to get the edge off each night. You might find your house full of junk food and then, you know, you started really good on keto and then, you know, you slipped off the wagon, um, and I could go on and on to maybe some more things. There's probably some old habitual sins that have come to your life that you thought for sure were not going to come back to your life. Um, why does this happen? Because you and I have a propensity to trust other things that our flesh can grab onto over trusting in God and his promises. And Paul knows this. He knows that you and I are idol worshipers. We're idolatrous. And we continue in a sad disgusting cycle of idolatry that worships the created things rather than the creator himself, God, which we read about in Romans 1. So considering this propensity, how how do we battle this awful propensity towards idolatry? Well, Paul gives us the answer. The answer, sorry. We look to the gospel. We look to the foundation, not the parachute. That may or may not work. But the foundation, the rock-solid foundation of God's character and nature and what he has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, look to him. Look at the shepherd who seeks after his sheep with tender and loving care, though they stray. Look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and bears your vile sin on the cross, who was beaten, mocked, and murdered, that he might give you his righteousness Look to the Father who adopts you, you poor and rebellious orphan who had no one that could love you or take you in, but he makes you his own. Look to your protection, who the Bible promises is a very present help in times of need. Look to your God, who should have crushed you under his mighty wrath and instead foreknew you, predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son. He called you, he justified you, and he will glorify you. Look to God. This is how we battle idolatry. There's no other way. We find our 
absolute satisfaction, joy, promise in, in Jesus Christ. And I simply want to say, God will not let you seek your comfort and security in any other thing except him for long. Rest assured, if you are a believer, God is after you. <laughs> and you should be both terrified and happy that he will not let you stay where you stand. So the plea goes out today, come. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and find life again. Come to Jesus and find the satisfaction for your soul. Come to Jesus and find the truth that all things, all things work together for your good. Come to Jesus and see that he knows what you're going through. He feels it. And he can say that because he's gone through all things for us. So come and find rest for your souls. Come and taste true confidence and assurance and security in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then when the bad times and the good times come, you are always leaning on the rock of ages. I love that Spurgeon, my, my, probably one of my favorite quotes of all times. He says, I have learned to kiss the waves that have thrown me against the rock of ages. I love, I love that God makes me suffer. Because if he didn't, I don't know where I would be. So how do we apply it? We have to lean on the, God, the strength that God supplies. I got three things. You just get alone with God and his word. If I can bet on one thing, and maybe I'm basing this on myself, so sorry if you've been awesome and I haven't been, but um, you probably have not been alone with God and his word as much as you should be. Get alone. Let those promises sink into your soul. That's what the Bible says. Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly and, and, and let the truths convict you. And then confess to one another. Confess to one another that we're not who we should be, that we're not where we're at. It's amazing what happens when we bring our sin to light. Darkness seems to not have the sway it used to have. And then repeat. <laughs> we're going to be on guard for this for the rest of our lives, 2020 or not. We need God's grace to go. So I'd love to pray with us, just pray through these things. Um, amen. Uh, you guys can stand. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, right now we we acknowledge our weakness. God, we are very weak. We feel very feeble, very unsure. And God, all, all we could do this morning is say, thank you and plead because we need you. Not just a little bit because we messed up once or twice, but because we are utterly lost without you. We have no hope if it's not your decisive and loving and sovereign power that rescues sinners like us. God, I pray not that we'd run to offense or doctrinal battling in this, but God, simply that we would come to you. And God, that we'd feel the release of our souls that maybe we haven't felt for a long time or maybe ever. I pray for those who have never believed upon the gospel of Jesus Christ that you would call them, affectionately 
call them into the justification and glorification that you hold out in the truths of your word this morning. And God, by the power of your spirit, would you search our hearts and know us as the word says. And would you lead us in the way everlasting. God, be the anchor to our souls. And I pray that we would see with absolute assurance that all things are working out for our good. No matter how hard they are, no matter how envious we get of other situations compared to ours, it's for our ultimate and glorious good. God, would you confirm our calling and election and make it sure. Oh, Lord, do what only you can do, I pray. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful, mighty name. Amen.